from the Carter Subaru Studios, this is Cairo Nights with Jake Skorheim. Welcome back to Cairo Nights. I am your host, Jake Skorheim. Thank you guys so much for hanging out. It's the third hour of the show. This is the hour where we really like to kick back, just relax, have fun, and just kind of take life as it comes, right? We don't need to like stress out about everything. Everything's gonna be fine. I promise. That's just the way that life works out. I feel like, as a 40-year-old man, and I just turned 40 over Christmas break, uh, December 25th is actually my birthday, I feel like when you turn 40, and you guys can hit me up on the text line and let me know if you discovered this as well, there's kind of this like anxiety that happens when you're in your 20s, you get out of college, you get into the working world, whatever that experience is like for you, and then you're kind of just like doing everything you can to like run up that hill, just like is that a Kate Bush song from Stranger Things? That's the only reason I know it. But you're just running up that hill. You're pushing up as hard as you can. Then you get into your 30s. Now you're just worried about like having kids and putting a roof over their head and all that stuff. And then I don't know what it is about 40 because I don't feel like financially I'm in any better shape than I was when I was than I was when I was in my 30s. But there is something about reaching 40 where I'm kind of at the halfway point of my life if I'm lucky. And now I'm just like, hey, you know what? Life's pretty good. I'm here. I'm breathing. I don't have any sicknesses right now that I know of. So what's there to complain about? And like life has a lot of hardships and problems. I totally understand that. Believe me, I have hardships in my family right now that we are dealing with with family members, things that we're trying to figure out. And they're very ser- some some very serious things. But I'm also fearing, feeling uh, very hopeful about the future. And I just want to express that to you guys tonight. I don't know who needed to hear that. Maybe I just needed to hear that. But I'm really thankful to be here talking to you guys, hanging out. And, you know, we're all in this thing together. So it's fun. And boy, isn't that a pathetic, Pollyannish view to have all the time. But I don't know. I like it. it makes me feel good. Let's get right into it. All right. I saw this and this one seemed kind of odd to me. And it led me to a bigger conversation that I wanted to have with you guys and play some audio that I that I uh, remember that I wanted to play for you guys. I thought was kind of interesting. So over the weekend, Jill Biden, uh, President Joe Biden's wife, she was giving a speech to a bunch of his supporters in Houston. And in the middle of the speech, she's you know, she's talking about the election coming up because it's 2024 and that's all everybody in politics wants to talk about. And again, we're not a political show, but I just found this interesting and really more. It's feeding into this this outlook I have about life right now. And so I felt like, I don't know, I just felt like it kind of fit. So Jill Biden is talking about her husband, Joe Biden, and she's talking because it's about supporters. And so she feels like, you know, the best way to get these supporters to reach into their pocket is to scare them talking about Donald Trump. And so she was saying, listen, here's what she said. She says, you see what happened at the border. You see what happened today with the border. And now Trump is trying to do everything he can to make Joe look bad. You know, even at the lives, sacrificing lives of so many people just for his own political gain, she told donors to her husband's reelection campaign. I know it's an early I know it's early to start, but I want you to sort of think after you leave tonight that, yes, I am committed to a democracy. And yes, I'm going to fight as hard as I can and not let anything like 2016 happen again. Now, I don't know where you guys come down politically. And quite frankly, I don't care. I really don't. You could be the farthest left person or the farthest right person. And if we laugh at the same stuff, then we got something in common. And I think that makes us a lot closer together than further apart. That's honestly how I feel. I really feel like a middle of the road guy and I just don't care about all this stuff. 
But I found that really interesting because her husband's been in politics for like 50 years, 50 plus years. He's been in it a long time. And now he's the president of the United States. And now he's running for re-election as the president of the United States. And still, she's saying that Trump is trying to make her husband look bad. Now, this is like a political campaign. And oftentimes, you find that the other party, who's trying to win the White House, does their best to try to convince everyone that the current person in the White House is not doing great. Look back at 2020 and tell me this did not happen all the time. But the other thing that kind of bugged me about this is this idea that like it's kind of all or nothing, which is what feels politics has kind of become. It's become this like, if the right person doesn't get elected, then democracy is going to be lost. And people should be terrified. Those words sink deep and they hit home with a lot of people. Nobody wants to feel terrified. I don't want to feel terrified. Do you want to feel terrified? Of course not. No. The other thing I don't like about this is I don't like that politics has kind of devolved into, and I'm, I, I apologize, guys. I'm really not trying to get up on a soapbox. I'm just trying to like understand this. As I see all this stuff, I just go like, what's going on? This feels weird to me. So I also don't like how politics has become so divisive. Like you either have to be far left or you have to be far right. It seems like if you're just to watch the news, those are the only two options, which I think is ridiculous. That's not the only two options. There is a third option, which is to be somebody just like right down the middle who tries to stay away from everything. Now, that's really tough because like I just played those. I just talked about those things that Joe Biden was saying. And then I also am going to play some stuff that Trump was saying. Trump is always calling Biden crooked Joe. Now, I don't know anything about tax returns and I don't know anything about the Biden family business and all that kind of stuff. It doesn't look great if I'm being completely honest about that. And there are some things that look kind of questionable, but would I say crooked Joe about the president of the United States? I don't know that I would say that, but that is something Trump says. Now, Trump also does have like a special talent and a special gift, in my humble opinion, for calling his opponents names. And what he's good at is being funny with those names. Now, here's another example of Trump doing that same thing. Now, I'm, and, I, and I'm not using this as, as an example to praise him. I'm actually using this as an example to say like, yes, it's kind of funny, but it feels ridiculous and I don't like this. So I don't like when uh, Biden's fight sides side does it. And I don't like when Trump does it either, honestly. Now this is Trump talking about Chris Christie. This is back in August of 2023. And he said some not nice things about Chris Christie when he was still a candidate. No, no, Christie's he's eating right now. He can't be bothered. <laughs> Sir, please do not call him a fat pig. That's very disrespectful. Don't call him. See, I'm, I'm trying to be nice. Don't call him a fat pig. You can't do it. You can't do that. So now, because you're not allowed to do that, and therefore uh, we're not going to do it, okay? We want to be very civil, right? <laughs> you're not allowed to do it, therefore we're not going to do it, okay? That's my horrible Trump impression. Okay, so all this name calling and all this kind of stuff. Because I'm feeling kind of thoughtful tonight, it just, it did make me think, because I was reading this Joe Biden stuff, and I'm remembering Trump stuff, and yes, like, those are going to be the two guys, and you're going to have to make your decision based on those two guys. You could vote for a third-party candidate. You could vote for somebody like Robert F. Kennedy Jr., uh, who is, you know, more libertarian and is trying to run as an independent, he, it, or he's, he's not going to win. Obviously, he's not going to win. But... Uh, it did remind me, a few years back, there was a guy whose name is uh, Charlie Munger. Do you guys remember who Charlie Munger is? He, or was, I should say. He was uh, Warren Buffett's partner at Berkshire Hathaway. 
phenomenally successful, made a ton of money. And not only was he phenomenally successful in business because he was a billionaire and he did very, very well, but he lived a pretty healthy life. He must have because he lived to be 99 years old. He was born in 1924. He died in uh, 2023, just shy of being 100 years old. He died, I think it was uh, late November of 2023. He was also successful personally. He was married to the same woman for over 60 years. They had five kids. And he was on CNN just a couple years back. And he was being asked on CNN about politics and how he weathers some of these storms. Now, this is, I think this is uh, uh, before Trump was even elected president. So this is a couple years back. And, and Charlie Munger, by the way, leaned right. He was definitely somebody who leaned more right. But he really looked at himself as a guy who was kind of down the middle. And he made his political decisions, I would imagine, based on individual issues. But the guy was very, very level-headed. And since he's 99 years old when he passed away, he also came from a different era. But he was asked by CNN about the state of politics in America. And I thought his answer was really interesting. So I just want to play that for you guys. Let's talk politics. Uh, people know... That- I also really like learning things from people who've been successful. So when I look at a guy who died a billionaire, who had a happy marriage for more than 60 years and had five kids who all seem to really adore him, then I, I'm happy to take advice from that guy. Let's talk politics. Uh, people know that your leanings are a little bit more to the right than Warren Buffett's a That's big right. election yes. next year. Are there any announced Republican candidates that you feel comfortable saying you would support? I don't pay huge attention to politics. It's not a field that I think plays to my strength. And so I tend to just endure whatever politicians come into power and some I like better than others. So there's no one. I'm not, I'm not a big political activist. When you, I'm going to pause it right there. I think that's a really smart way to look at things. I'll play the rest of this clip in just a second. But he says he's like politics doesn't really play to his strengths. And to be honest, politics does not play to my strengths or my interests or, or my interests. So I tend to avoid it. But I do think his word endure is a good one because people get so fatalistic about politics these days. And I just don't understand it. I've been working in uh, in radio and in the news industry, I guess, for like the better part of 16 years. And there's been a lot of people elected and then a lot of people who go away and people really seem to make the argument every time somebody's in the middle of an election, it's either this or everything's not going to work. And now that I've seen some of this, like enough of this, I know that that's not true. And I know that you guys who are listening, a lot of you are much, much smarter than I am. So you know this to be true as well. Look at Washington, even if you're not necessarily rooting for a specific candidate, what do you think are the biggest problems in Washington right now? Because I think a lot of business leaders and a lot of average Americans think that Washington is a significant roadblock. I liked to- it better when it was a more bipartisan place. Mm-hmm. You got to remember that I lived through the era when we did the Cold War as a bipartisan activity. Right. And the Republicans and Democrats stood shoulder to shoulder and so forth. I like that better. I don't like this extreme partisanship we have now. Do you think that there's any chance that that changes or this is well, just the way it's going it, to be? There's always some chance that things will change and it can get either better or worse. <laughs> well, again, that's uh, that recording. That was a, an interview that Charlie Munger did. He's passed away now, but that's an interview he did uh, about seven years ago. I would say that it got worse. It has since gotten worse in politics. And maybe that's just the state of politics. Maybe that's just the way it goes. And things always seem to look 
the darkest before the dawn. And, you know, so whatever. That's just the way politics goes. But I like to keep a level-headed approach. And for anyone listening right now, don't let it get you down, buddy. All right, let's move on to some other stuff. Do you buy tires like I do? Do you love buying tires like I do? I don't love spending money on tires, and I think tires are really expensive. I understand that, and I don't like it. But the process of buying tires is pretty simple right now. You need tires. You go into a place like Les Schwab, Big O Tires, uh, uh, Discount Tires, Walmart. Who else sells them? Um, uh, Costco sells tires. You go into one of those spots, and you get tires. You pick the tire that best fits your budget and your vehicle. And there you go. That's as simple as it is. But in Washington state, things are never as simple as they seem because it seems that there is a new bill out there that would give Washington state Department of Commerce the authority to ban tires that it deems inefficient and bad for climate change. Uh, So listen to this. This is an article you can see on MyNorthwest.com. It's... Par for the course when it comes to government in our state, it seems. It would apply to any replacement tires for cars and light-duty trucks under 10,000 pounds. So that is basically every vehicle out there that is driven daily. If you drive a a vehicle that's over 10,000 pounds, you're probably driving something commercial. Uh, It would also give the Department of Commerce the ability to find people anywhere from $100, and that's on the low side, to $10,000 for violations. Now I don't. I'm not under sure how this works. Like, are they going out and literally like kicking people's tires? Are they going around with a quarter? Are they doing that like quarter trick? You know what I'm talking about, where you put the quarter in the treads and see how much tread is there. But in this case, if there's too much tread, are they going to give you a violation for that? Uh, here's here's one of the uh, people who are pushing forth this bill. It is a uh, his name is Democratic Representative Street. Um, and let's see here. Democratic Representative Street said, I, actually, I don't know that if it's a he. It just says Democratic Representative Street. So let's just assume it is a person. At the end of the day, says Representative Street, we're facing a climate crisis and we need to use as many possible tools to get ourselves out of that. This is one way to increase the gas efficiency of some of our vehicles. The bill focuses on the rolling resistance of tires. So basically how this works, the heavier the tire... That usually means it's more durable and the longer life you get out of that tire. It also means uh, that it has more resistance and less energy efficient. So the heavier the tire, the fewer miles to the gallon that it gets. So that's what they want to take away. They want to take away tires that are getting less miles to the gallon. So four-wheel drive vehicles tend to use big tires. Big trucks tend to use big tires. Now, there's a reason that they use big tires because you can't load a bed into a Prius. You just can't. A Prius, the trunk on a Prius, and believe me, I know this because my mother-in-law drives one. It's a sporty little vehicle. Gets gets great gas mileage. But guess how much stuff that she can carry? None. So she wants to move stuff around. Guess who she calls? Me. Because I have a big truck. And I can carry a lot of stuff in my truck. And that's why I drive a big truck. Because I like to carry stuff. Makes me feel powerful. Um, all right. So this bill, fo- uh, this bill would ban the sale of tires that fail to meet these efficiency goals. Now, I'm assuming that these efficiency goals are set by the Washington State Department of Commerce. I don't know how much I like the Washington State Department of Commerce getting into the tire business. 
I, do you want them in the tire business? If it makes it more expensive for you and it gives you less options, I imagine your answer to that is probably no. So uh, again, the prime sponsor of this again, represent, Representative Street continues saying you would still be allowed to go to a different state to buy tires and come back to the state. Oh, that's so kind of them. And you would not be prosecuted. Well, isn't that so nice? That's so pleasant that this elected official would allow you a free individual in a free country to travel across state lines to buy tires that are illegal to buy in Washington state because we've banned them for climate reasons. And instead you could go down to Oregon or you could go over to Idaho and you could buy the tires of your dreams. And when you come back here, they won't even prosecute you. Isn't that big of them? They said, this is not a way to sort of check the tires that people are using on their cars. It's literally changing the market dynamics for what tires are available in the state. Now, I find it ironic that we just talked about Charlie Munger a second ago because that guy was a very successful capitalist. I wonder what his opinion would be about politicians, doesn't matter if they're left or they're right, stepping in and telling private companies how to run their businesses. You heard the guy there. He said, I don't know if it's a guy, whoever it is. You said it gives the Department of Converse, oh, I'm sorry, not the Department of Converse. They said it's literally changing the market dynamics for what tires are available in the state. The problem with this, though, is it limits your ability to buy whatever tire you want to buy. So let's say you drive a smaller car, but you want a little bit of a bigger tread on your vehicle because it's the rainy season and you want to make sure that you're able to get somewhere safe. So it would likely eliminate those tires because why would a car company... I'm sorry, not a car company. Why would a place like Les Schwab or why would a place like Big O Tires or Discount Tires or Walmart or Costco stock a tire that you might love that's great for your vehicle if the Washington State Department of Commerce is going to fine them $10,000 for trying to sell you that that tire? In fact, Jennifer Ziegler, who works with Les Schwab, Uh, She actually spoke in front of, uh, she testified about this, and she said there's a difference between making sure consumers have a range of information and actually prohibiting the kinds of tires that are available to them. I think that's a very smart distinction. She goes on to say, the bill goes beyond just providing consumers with a range of information to make decisions, and it actually gives the Department of Commerce the authority to prohibit the sale of certain types of tires. Now, what are the downstream effects of this? Now, we got to get out of this segment really fast. So I'm going to get get to the base of this really quick so you guys can understand this. Tracy Norberg works with the U.S. Tire Manufacturers Association. Their job is to make sure that they know tires and what's safe for your vehicle. She says the easiest way to reduce rolling resistance is to reduce tread depth, which will in turn reduce wet traction performance. Now, what's the problem with that? More accidents. Clearly. Like when I run my tire down and it's time to get new tires, you know it because you drive in the rain one time too many and boom, bad idea. You're sliding all over the place. It's scary. You're hydroplaning. It's very dangerous. And I like getting tires. So don't change the way I buy tires. Please, Washington State. Please, Representative Street. Can I just beg you? Please, 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 please let me buy my tires like I want to buy them. Don't make me go to Idaho to buy my tires. Please, Representative Street. Although if I do have to go to Idaho to get my tires, I at least could fill up on my gas tank while I'm there because gas is way cheaper across the border, both in Idaho and Oregon. All right, we got a lot more coming up on the show, so stick around. We're going to be right back here on Cairo Nights.
You're listening to Cairo Nights with Jake Scorheim. Welcome back to Cairo Nights. I have a very special guest on with me right now. Do you guys remember about, uh, let's see, it was the last election cycle when we were talking about this. I guess it would be the uh, off election year, but it was when we were talking about Prop 1, and it was the Renter's Bill of Rights in Tacoma, and that basically was passed, and it gives renters a whole lot of rights, but on the flip side, it does make it more difficult, in my opinion, to have somebody who might own a small house to continue renting out that house because it puts them in a really bad situation, actually. I wanted to actually find out a little bit more about this, so I reached out to Corey Brewer. He is the Vice President for Residential Operations with Windermere Property Management. He has a really interesting op-ed that's going to come out this week in the Seattle Times talking about just exactly this. Corey, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, Jake, thank you. I appreciate it. Just to round you out for a second, what do you do at Windermere and who, who are the clients that you're working with? Sure. Uh, you mentioned the small rental property. Those are almost exclusively our clients here. We, we call them mom and pop landlords. We manage about 2,000 properties locally and almost every single one of them is owned by a different client. Um, so truly your, your individual small housing providers. Gotcha. So when this renter's bill of rights passes in Tacoma, what are you guys thinking? Yeah. Uh, well, the interesting thing about that is, is it barely passed um, by, I think it was right around 500 votes or something like that. So one of the slimmest of margins. That's right. Very um, tight. It's very tight. That package was basically a combination of, of most of the things that the city of Seattle has done over the past five or six years, one piece at a time. Tacoma just kind of bunched it all up and, and went ahead with all of it in one shot. Um, now, what we have seen in Seattle over that span of the last five years or so is a pretty dramatic reduction in the number of these small houses, these, these rental homes that are available in the market. It's been about a 12% uh, total loss of those type of properties. The, the amount of units out there for rent in Seattle have remained relatively stable, but we're seeing, for example, three and four bedroom houses owned by that individual mom and pop landlord replaced by uh, a tower full of studio apartments. And, um, you know, if you look at the unit count, it remains pretty much the same, but now we've got, you know, how many people who were living in a three or four bedroom home are going to be able to make everything work in a studio apartment. Well, not at all. I mean, like this really hit home for me because, you know, I'm a homeowner now, but not long ago, just within the last five years, my wife and I and our three kids were looking around for a new rental property. And we ended up moving into a little house that was great. It was owned by an older lady and it was in the Linwood area. And it was great for us. It really worked for us. The price wasn't too high. It was managed by a property company. I think it was actually managed by Windermere Property Management. Those mm -hmm. types of homes though, are not going to be available for young families. And I, when we were not in a position at the time to go out and just buy our dream home or even buy any house that we wanted, we were in, a, we were in the rental market and that's where we were going to be for a few years. But we also knew that a studio apartment or even a two bedroom type apartment wouldn't work for our situation. So are we mm -hmm. going to see these homes go away? Yeah. I mean, it, well, if, if what we've seen over the past four or five years or so in Seattle is an indication. Uh, unfortunately, I do think we're going to see that happening next in Tacoma. Um, and, you know, ultimately, less choices are going to be out there for people. Uh, and we know what happens when there are less choices. Prices tend to go up because the supply is restricted. Um, one of the things you'll see in, in this op-ed that I wrote, I, I took a look at, you know, the, the financial side of this and, and what you just mentioned with your own family. Like, okay, we're not ready to buy that home yet. And so we're going to be renters for X amount of time. But the, 
the financial uh, aspect of this, whether you're going to buy that three-bedroom house in Seattle or rent that three-bedroom house in Seattle, a three-bedroom house in Seattle lately costs a million dollars. And, you know, uh, if you're doing a traditional 20% down payment, that's $200,000. That's a lot of money. Uh, yeah. And then, I mean, I ran some numbers and you'll see them in the Seattle Times. The The monthly payment on mortgage alone uh, is about 47% higher than the average monthly rental. Wow. And that does not even factor in property taxes, which in Seattle are generally quite high. Um, so the, it, the analysis, like, what is it going to cost me per month? to move my family into a three bedroom home in Seattle. Well, it is significantly more expensive to buy that home. Uh, and it's going to become more expensive to rent that home. The fewer choices are available. So another thing that's happening right now is you have a couple, you have a couple things on the ballot. Can we talk about that? What's coming up on the ballot? That's also going to be, you know, make it more <clears throat> difficult for people who own these homes, these little mom and pop, uh, homeowners yeah. who then want to rent it out and provide a nice place for folks to come in and, and, you know, maybe like my situation, raise their family for a few years. What are these ballot mm -hmm. measures going to do? Yeah, there's a couple. Th well, there's more than a couple, but the two I'll focus on is that there's one is a rent control bill um, that is going to come in and say, okay, you running this business, you're you're going to have a lid on your your opportunity to make income in that business. Uh, and then the other is a is a increased tax specifically targeted at rental income. So kind of a double double whammy. Um, here's here's some additional operating expenses for you. Uh, but you're also going to be restricted on what you can earn. Uh, so, you know, good luck. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting. I really, uh, I really am in the, in the middle here. I totally understand because I have, I have only recently stopped being in the rental market. So I totally understand why people would want to, you know, be very attracted to something. When you see something, this is renter's bill of rights. That just naturally mm -hmm. you go, Oh, great. A renter's bill of rights. That makes total sense to me. But on the flip side, when you really start digging into it, if it takes away more options for me and my family and it ends mm -hmm. up like backing us into a corner to have to go somewhere like, you know, if we live down in Tacoma or if we lived in Seattle, I mean, we've have, you know, we, <laughs> we decided to move out of Seattle. That was a choice that we made. Um, but we moved out of Seattle. If we were stuck in one of these places where we had to like go into a rent, go into an apartment situation versus the house, I would be very upset because I want my kids to have a yard. I mean, I like the idea that people could have choice. And as much as this is called the Bill of Rights for renters, it does make it feel like ultimately it's taking away people's options. Yeah, I mean, that, and I think history has proven that that's kind of the long-term effect of something like rent control. Um, it, it probably would help people in the very short term. Um, but when you start to look at it as a broader policy and what is the effect on the community and and people's long-term options, it doesn't paint a very good picture. Can you tell me from your conversations for some of these, you know, mom and pop homeowners that you are working yeah. with, what are the, what's the feeling right now? Because, you know, obviously everybody knows that the housing market in Seattle, in yeah. all the surrounding areas is pretty hot. And so somebody goes, all right, yeah. I have all of these regulations coming my way and mm -hmm. it's going to be very difficult for me to rent out a place. You had mentioned something earlier about, you know, when you and I were talking before the interview that if somebody wants to raise their rent and the person who's in the rental space doesn't want to pay that increase, what are they able to do? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Yeah. So in this rent control proposal, there's also this element of, of walking away from the remainder of the existing contract. Uh, and that's not getting a whole lot of attention, but I think it's really important. Like 
if I was your landlord and you were my tenant, we sign a one-year lease for, for, a, for a fixed amount of, of rent, and that's not going to change during that one-year commitment. We, we have voluntarily entered into a contract together, and I'm going to now be required at the six-month mark to tell you what the terms of the next contract are going to be. And if that includes a rent increase of 3% or more starting next year, you know, six months from now, you now have the ability to walk away from the remainder of our current contract. Mm. Um, and so, you know, effect like the, the idea is to give people a chance to plan ahead and that's important, but at the same time, it, it essentially takes that contract that we signed and it makes it not worth the paper that it's written on. And so what was the point of signing a lease in the first place. Yeah, which gets um, back to my original question, which is when you're talking to these mom and pop homeowners, if they're mm -hmm. looking at all these regulations, why would they keep a house in an area like this yeah. to rent out? Yeah, it's, when they could sell tricky. it, like you I mean, said, houses are three three bedroom houses in Seattle go for a million bucks, and they get snapped up bucks. like that. So why would somebody mm -hmm. hold on to that? That's I I would just cash it out personally. Sure, sure. Um, still a good long term investment. And, um, you know, some people are holding on to these homes, uh, for their eventual future use. Maybe their adult children when they get older. Um, maybe it's a home that they choose or are planning to move back into themselves sure, after a certain amount of time. Maybe retire or something like that. Yeah. Retirement. Yeah. And so everybody's got their own individual motivations. Um, I, I can't speak for every single one of our clients individually, but you know, everybody has their different place in life and things like that. Um, but certainly, yeah, there, there's a, there's enough of percentage of people who do view it that way. And it's like, gosh, this is just too risky. And I don't, I don't think I want to be doing this anymore. And the, the other point I'll make is that, um, it, a lot of these people have historically uh, done it on their own, right? Like they, they own and operate their own rental housing and they do the repairs on their own and they write the leases and everything. Um, now we see a lot of those people under a more complicated regulatory environment seeking out a professional property manager like my company. Yeah. Um, and so it's actually been kind of a silver lining for us, as annoying as it all is. We, we actually are growing our clientele. However, um, when, it, when it translates to the, the renter population, now these landlords are bringing on a new operating expense. Um, and ultimately I think that probably drives rents higher. Um, one of the other really interesting things I think that kind of goes on with people psychologically is that if you have a 5% rent control cap and you know that as a landlord, I think you're probably likely to do a 5% increase every year going forward, just kind of by default, because you, you kind of feel like you have to, and you don't want to get behind. Whereas without that kind of hanging over your head, you might have only done a 2% increase. Sure. Uh, and I think there's something there psychologically that, that kind of works backwards with rent control as well. Yeah. And, and again, ends up making it more expensive for the renter, ironically. Yeah. Corey Brewer, he's the vice president, residential operations for Windermere Property Management. We really do appreciate you making the time and uh, helping us suss some of this out. It's been my pleasure. Thank you, Jake. All right. We're going to be right back here on Cairo Nights. You're listening to Cairo Nights with Jake Scorheim.
Welcome back to Cairo Nights. I hope you guys have been having a wonderful night. This has been a really fun show. I felt like maybe we were a little extra talky tonight. We do a lot of interviews generally on the show, but for whatever reason tonight, it really felt like we were able to kind of get deep and just chat and have fun. I really do appreciate you guys listening. I saw this thing earlier and I was kind of fascinated by this and I thought I would bring it up with you guys as well. We're all feeling this right now. If you're listening to the podcast, you may not be feeling this right now, but if you're listening live, I guarantee if you're in this area, you might be feeling this. Is that a good guarantee? I guarantee you might be. No, it's not a good guarantee. The weather. Are you guys loving this weather? I can't get enough of it. It's super warm. We actually set some uh, some temperature records in Washington State yesterday. Listen to this. This is bizarre. So yesterday, it was 69 degrees in Bellingham. 70 degrees, which is insane. Uh, our high up until that point was back in 1992. That's when it was set. It was 62 degrees back in 1992. Now again, January 29th, yesterday. Super, super warm. We're like one month out from Christmas. We're in the dead middle of our winter, and we're looking at 70 degrees. Now, if this is what climate change is, I like it. I like it a lot, and I want more of it. In fact, I have a new name that I think you guys should use, Now I'm going to end the show on a really stupid dad joke, so please don't hate me, but I actually thought this was a really good idea. I referred to this earlier when I was talking about this with my wife, and she goes, oh, hey, that's really kind of a good name for it. It's a pocket of warm air, right? It's like this hot... Pocket? Huh? Is that pretty good? All right, that's really dorky. But yeah, if anybody wants to refer to it and say, oh, did you hear about this hot pocket of warm air that's coming down? Yes, I did come up with that. Now, no, I didn't come up with the name. That is for the tiny little pockets of uh, pastry and meat that Jim Gaffigan has so perfectly used in his comedy. But we can also use the term hot pocket when it comes to describing warm pockets of air. In our local area. I just think it feels more fun to say hot pocket of weather. Don't you? Am I wrong about that? No, I'm not. I don't even that's a I don't even need to ask the question because I know I'm right. All right. We have a ton of great stuff coming up for tomorrow. We're already working on a great show. And if you haven't done so already, go out there, wherever you get the podcast, download Kyra Nights with Jake Scoreheim onto your phone mash down that follow button and then you don't have to miss a second of the show and little gems like hot pocket you don't ever have to miss one of those again you're welcome all right we have a great show tomorrow don't miss it but for tonight i gotta get some sleep i'm so tired it's been a long day and tomorrow is coming up fast so night night <laughs>